Welcome to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast as we continue our conversation on the subject of value addition in mineral oil and gas commodities. I'm pleased to say that today my guest is Jesse Ovadia. Jesse is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Windsor in Ontario, Canada. His research uh, is primarily about the political economy in oil, gas, and mining. And he focuses on local content, value addition, and industrial development policies. Jess is also the author of The Petro Development State in Africa, published in 2016. Jesse has consulted for the World Bank and the African Development Bank and the Natural Resource Governance Institute. As a matter of fact, it was at the African Development Bank that I first met Jesse. Jesse, welcome to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Sheila. I'm, I'm really honored to be here. I've been listening along to your podcast, and I'm excited to participate in it. Lovely. So I wanted to uh, discuss this, what I call the sustainable aspects of uh, such policies. And so with that in mind, I wanted to ask you, in your mind, Jesse, how sustainable is it that value addition policies, especially in developing countries, revolve around a single raw material, which is to say what happens if and when that raw material runs out? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I, um, I should step back and say that my interest in value addition and in local content, especially when it comes to uh, oil, gas, and, and mining, was initially sparked by the idea that this approach would help countries move away from their dependence on raw material exports. So, you know, developing new industries in a country that is dependent on the export of primary commodities is always going to be a very difficult thing to do. And so my idea was that you would look to build new industries and new comparative advantages in areas that are linked to that uh, export sector, to those raw materials that you export. And um, in, in the oil and gas industry in particular, there's such a small need for direct employment, uh, especially of you know, less highly skilled labor, that uh, this, is, this is a much better model, or I, I thought there was more potential in linking it to the, uh, the extractive sector. And so this involves some resource nationalism, and resource nationalism has a, a kind of a negative connotation but promoting value addition is a form of resource nationalism that I think has a lot of legitimacy. And the employment possibilities are, 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 are much stronger in the goods and services that are required for resource extraction. And the, the amount of money spent by multinational firms on those goods and services is, is very significant, as you know. So, so that's why I see great potential. This and, is interesting. Um, yeah, Sorry, go ahead. go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to add quickly that the reason I became interested in the possibilities of you know, value addition and local content regulations is also because oil, gas, and minerals are unique. You know, they're in the ground in a specific location and they're very valuable. So a multinational company can't just pick up their operations, move to another fiscal and regulatory regime at will. They can still do it. Obviously, they have to be able to make a profit. And when I was making these arguments, uh, keep in mind that oil was over $100 a barrel. So it was a, a much better time for oil uh, extraction. There was more latitude to push for in-country value addition, or what I called you know, petro-development, especially in Angola and Nigeria. 
That's interesting. So, so you said two things there that are very interesting. The first is your, if you wish, positive take on resource nationalism, because typically resource nationalism is seen by critics as being contrary to creating the right environment for investment. As a matter of fact, many management consultancy firms consider resource nationalism one of the topmost sources of sovereign risk. But you are saying that, no, actually, in this incidence, given uh, where the countries are, the extent of the value of these resources and what they can do to help their lot, resource nationalism is, in fact, a progressive development rationale. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yeah, not the uh, not the nationalization of industries. You know, the the um, indigenization efforts. I'm 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 not in, in favor of those. But local content, even to some extent, you know, um, policies that require social investment or corporate social responsibility. These are an articulation of of resource nationalism. They're an articulation of the idea that citizens need to benefit from these resources. And most countries would, in their constitution, say that uh, resources belong to the state and its citizens, and they should be used for developmental outcomes. So any policy that tries to promote that is a form of resource nationalism. And, uh, and we have to find out, we have to find the policies that are going to succeed in, uh, in creating that development, creating industrialization, and uh, and benefiting the the companies involved as well, and uh, I think that value addition is where we need to focus. That's interesting uh, because what you are basically saying is that resource nationalism, seen in the context of ensuring that citizen benefit, is a positive thing and shouldn't be seen by investors as a threat. Because I think typically the assumption is that. By definition, it threatens investors. But you also said something, uh, particularly with reference to oil and where oil was in 2016 versus where it is now, both in terms of price and for that matter, what we think might happen to that industry in future, which is that timing is everything. So there I wanted to just follow up and ask this question, Jesse. Given that the timing of when governments or investors make investment in this value addition processes is critical. You know, how does one then mitigate risk in the long run, given that investment, typically the return takes a long time to realize? Yes. Yeah, that's especially true in oil and gas, as, as you know. I think that um, local content and value addition will always involve certain amounts of cost. And um, uh, I, 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 my view is that um, when the agreement is signed, companies and governments need to come together and make sure that there is a strategy that will allow um, um, citizens to benefit whatever happens to the price of oil. Because if citizens are not benefiting from that resource, then it should not be uh, it should not be exploited, right? So, and that that situation will change, as you said, depending on the. Um, um, global economic circumstances in, in, a, in a particular moment, but that's that that's the question that should be asked, and it is a resource nationalist question. So, uh, and the strategy will depend not only on what the price of the commodity is at that time, and what the forecast is, but the strategy also depends on how much re uh, uh, reserves of the the commodity uh, there are. And, uh, and on other factors. So if a country has less reserves of oil, 
they should be more focused on promoting value addition and building new comparative advantages in areas that are not limited to the extractive industries. This brings us back to, you mentioned sustainability in your first question, right? So if you want these resources to be sustainable uh, or the development of them to be sustainable, then you want to focus on goods and services that are not only needed for resource extraction, but have um, um, more broad applications, you know, engineering, design, welding, manufacturing of common spares, provision of IT services, you know, and so on. That's, that's more sustainable because those services will continue to benefit the economy even after the world moves away from fossil energy, even after that resource is depleted. Um, and, and so the more, and the more time that passes, the less countries should be focusing on value addition in very highly specialized areas uh, because the window for you know, benefiting and developing from fossil fuel production or, or really any non-renewable resource um, is, is closing to some extent. But, but value addition is about industrialization. So that's why I believe it's really essential. So you said something again there that is, I think it's important because we, we, we think primarily of policies and then the laws. What I have seen is that fewer governments think about the strategic element, which is really what instructs the direction you take, the pace, the choices you make as you go along. And one of the things that I think is, is particularly interesting is that you are looking at this question of value addition holistically. Most policymakers look at it as a process simply of processing of beneficiating resources, but you, you are taking a much broader view, which is to link the resource with the rest of the economy, but do so in a way that moves you away from being dependent on the resource to being more agile and able to take advantage of the larger economy. Is that a correct interpretation, Jesse? Yes, that's that's right. And that's why I, I, I'm so insistent on the idea that government has to play a, a leading role in this because it's not for private industry to set national development agendas and, uh, and to you know, see them through, right? That's, that's the role of government. So I, I very strongly believe there's a, there's a role for government in this process and there's a role for the private sector. So now that you've set the scene for what you, ought, you think ought to be the right strategies, in your view then, to what degree does the absence of these strategies and this understanding, to what extent has it impeded the successful value addition of resources in developing countries? Yeah, I, I think that this strategy is very difficult to follow. It's, um, there, there are a lot of challenges, especially in the implementation of uh, a value addition promotion strategy, right? And uh, two, two um, challenges in particular that I wanted to mention were the problem of confusing value addition with indigenization and, and local participation. And then uh, the problem of, of, um, of corruption or poor management of the, of the strategy. And um, those, are, those are the stumbling blocks, but on the other hand, I think this is probably why I'm, I'm often thought of as being very optimistic about this topic. I think that pretty much every country that has successfully industrialized since Great Britain and the Industrial Revolution has done it with a large amount of government support and, and government direction. It's been state-led. So this is, this is the, the, the model that works and, and has worked for every country that is industrialized. 
So that's uh, very interesting because I think all of us that even studied history in its most simplistic form know that the role of governments in creating a space in which national firms can flourish, either at home or abroad, is really very critical. And so what you're saying is developing countries doing the same, taking a leadership role and creating this environment is what is going to unleash that potential and that it isn't something that firms can lead. Yet, interestingly, what we see in developing countries is that there seems to me to be the expectation by governments that they write the laws, they sit back, and then industry makes it happen. My sense is that this is not quite realistic, that much more needs to be done before industry can take the lead. Yes, that's that's my belief as well. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's really a process that should be led by government, but it's not always going to be very popular. Uh, when you are articulating a very general resource nationalist idea, like citizens should benefit from their resources, of course, that's going to be very popular. But when you try and set up particular um, um, a particular strategy to create new comparative advantage in particular industries, and really, if you want to be successful in this, you're only going to be able to do it in two or three key areas. You're going to have to pick which sectors to benefit. And there you're going to have to, part of this involves government picking winners and losers. And that's not going to be as politically beneficial. It'll be much more politically attractive to say we want to see value addition across the value chain in every, in every sector. And uh, that is, I think, why government often stalls and is unable to lead that process and, and achieve the um, the results that it wants to achieve. That is quite insightful, Jesse, because I think what you are saying is you are stating the obvious but not so obvious truth, which is that it's all too easy for governments to make these broad sweeping rhetorical statements. These are resources we want to value add. But nobody then goes deep into that to say, right, we all agree. So what does it involve? because the potential political fallout in beginning to unbundle it and realizing that not everybody comes out a winner, but that potentially the whole country wins, that I think is, is one of the challenges. So, so let's assume, let's take a, a, a cynical view and assume that you know, the politicians and policymakers are going to continue to be expedient because what they really need to do is too difficult to reckon with. And it, it just is counterintuitive to their interests in the short term. What does that mean then for citizens of these countries that are produce these resources but cannot value it? Are they condemned in perpetuity to be consumers of products from other countries that, uh, to your point, have had the advantage historically of stepping up to the map, whatever the circumstances? Well, I mean, I think my very strong belief is that these strategies absolutely can work and that we, we have seen successes. And... And I don't just mean, you know, in, in Southeast Asia where, you know, South Korea created steel and shipping industries or, or, or things like that. We've seen, you know, vehicle manufacturing in, in several African countries now. There's a, even a company in Nigeria building electric vehicles. There are companies contributing in the value train chains of oil and gas and mining in ways that they haven't prior to local content policies. But I think because government has really only suggested that value addition is a priority instead of really targeting specific sectors to build comparative advantage. 
it's actually been the private sector that has um, achieved these uh, these successes. And in order to sort of be able to say that they have been working on this and, and that it's important to them. And I, I think that industrial policy and, and value addition is, um, is much broader than that, right? It's a, a larger process of moving people out of low yield agriculture and the informal sector and into manufacturing and services. And it requires not only strategic leadership, but it requires social investment redistribution of wealth by the government, investment in um, higher education and in, 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 in people's livelihoods and in health and, and welfare. So I think really the often overlooked part of this is that in the long run, we, we would like to see the formation of a, a democratic developmental state spearheading structural transformation. That's kind of academic uh, jargon to some extent, but it's a way of expressing that you would want to see um, um, citizens um, um, feeding into this process and the government acting in a developmental way. So let's try it. Let's assume you and I run country X <laughs> and we are the sensible lot and, and we realize we can't be all things to all people. If you think about, say, you know, take, uh, say, oil and gas, and let's assume that the world of uh, petroleum wasn't changing the way it is, so that there was some semblance of stability in the long term. What strategically would we start by doing, quite apart from changing the narrative? Because my sense is that if one looks at the entire value chain, for a country to presume it can play at all those stages probably is flawed. Now, if we take the value chain of oil, where would the comparative advantage be for developing countries where you would say, given what I know about the state of development, and given that you can't do everything, strategically, this is what you should do, and why would you suggest that? Yeah, okay, good question. That's, that makes it very concrete. And, and what you would want is uh, to set up uh, a regulatory agency with a great deal of autonomy from business, and that is, and, and, and a lot of expertise, technical expertise, to pick a couple of key sectors that they would build new forms of comparative advantage in. And if, obviously, if every country picked the same ones, then the strategy wouldn't work. That, that's you know, often a mistake development agencies make to, to propose that all countries follow the same model. But um, there are definitely sectors that are better. I mentioned already, you might want to choose sectors that have non-oil applications. Uh, so engineering design might be a good one or, um, or, um, or, or basic manufacturing of, 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 of uh, structures and, and common spares would be a good one. And you'd want to uh, pick as well uh, a sector that has more potential to employ larger numbers of people. That's why I focus often on welding or on IT services. Um, but you know, you pick two to three uh, areas, and you set aspirational lofty targets in those areas. That's what uh, South Korea, Singapore, and Hong Kong did in their strategies. But you don't set unrealistic targets across the value chain. Everywhere else, if you're going to set targets at all, then you should set them at what the current uh, domestic capacity is. Uh, so that it reflects the current capacity. And then you really focus your energy on those uh, three sectors 
and try to build a new comparative advantage, try and build an industry that is um, going to be protected for a short amount of time, but is very quickly going to be competitive on a global market and a global scale. And that's a, um, a very important part of this. Mm. It, it can't be protected forever. So that's very, and that's where the nationalism, resource nationalism comes in, in part, that uh, element of protectionism to incubate these resources in the full knowledge that these industries, in the full knowledge that at some point they have to leave the next, the nest. So you've made examples of three Asian countries, South Asian countries, that is uh, South Korea, Hong Kong, and Singapore. Now, of course, particularly both Hong Kong and Singapore, these have no resources really to speak of. Which then begs the question, what's the big deal then in other developing countries like Latin America and Africa? Why is everything hinging upon availability of natural resources? Is this really the right approach? Is it the right assumption given that the three countries you have put on the table are not very well resourced and done? Yeah, those countries were the, they call them the original developmental states. And um, my thinking is that their approach um, was possible in the moment that they carried it out, but it, it isn't really possible anymore. There are, there are many more um, uh, international agreements about um, intellectual property, uh, technology transfer, and, uh, and trade, and, and putting, in, uh, putting protections on trade that make it hard to follow the strategy that they followed. Um, and so, my idea was that there would be another way, there would be a way to achieve a petro-developmental state by linking it to the oil and gas industry, you know, taking advantage of the, the value of those commodities and the fact that they are there in the ground to put in place the same kind of strategy that worked in Southeast Asia. It works a lot better in, a, in an era of uh, high commodity prices, but I, I think that the, th the thing that's changed positively since I, I first articulated some of those ideas is there's a lot more support amongst multinational companies for value addition uh, um, in, in country. And uh, I've, seen, I've seen especially oil and gas companies, but also large mining firms really embrace the idea of in-country value addition, knowing that there's going to be some cost involved but feeling, uh, uh, feeling that they have some responsibility to do this and, um, and working with government in order to uh, make that happen. So yeah, I'm, it may be that I am a little bit overly optimistic about this, but uh, I, I firmly believe that, it, it, that this strategy can be a way forward in terms of creating sustainable and long-term development. Let me take you back to something you said earlier. When we were describing the ideal status quo. You said that for value addition to succeed in the way that you envision it, one of the things that are necessary is that they, they should be what you call autonomy from the private sector, if, if I'm correct. And I wonder if you can just take us back to that. What do you mean by autonomy? Because most people's view is that the private sector is altogether too powerful. And that in the end, the private sector is the wind behind the sale of many of the countries, and therefore there is no autonomy. Yes, that's right. And, and, and um, that's often the case, even in developed countries. The, the, it's often very difficult for government to regulate, especially large industries, right? 
And um, uh, the, 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 the historical experience though, is that uh, you need regulators to be able to act with autonomy because the private sector on its own is not always going to seek out the most developmental outcomes. They're going to seek the most profitable outcomes for themselves. And especially in the early stages of um, nurturing infant industries, creating new comparative advantages, you're going to need to get those uh, companies to reinvest uh, their profits in those industries and in making them more efficient and, and competitive globally. And, uh, and therefore, the regulators are going to need to be, you know, have a working relationship that's quite strong with the private sector. But at times, they're going to need to be able to lead the way and, uh, and, uh, and you know, make sure that the outcomes are, are developmental. Let's go back then to, again, the role of the state then as this, the steward of this process. One of the ways that Europe, a little less so the United States, but certainly Europe, as in France, to a lesser extent, Germany, but certainly the United Kingdom, one of the ways in which they incubated and protected nationalist industries was by the state itself to have an investment in some of the leading industries in those countries. We have now in the developing world, certainly huge state-owned entities, especially in the oil and gas space, whether it is Algeria, whether it is Egypt, whether it is uh, Angola, whether it is, uh, uh, for that matter, uh, Nigeria. With that in mind then, Jesse, in the value addition space specifically, what, if at all, do you see as the potential role of state-owned entities in championing or being a partner with the state in championing value addition? Yeah, well, um, one of the, the main areas that the state can be helpful is in supplying the, the capital that's needed to start up a new um, industry, right? It's, it's going to be very expensive and there may not be uh, local capitalists willing to partner on that, willing to take that risk or, or, or even possessing the amount of capital, especially when it comes to oil and gas offshore services, to, uh, to be involved. So then the state plays a, lead, plays a role. The state can create a joint venture with uh, a multinational um, um, oil services firm or mining services firm and domicile in their own country some of those um, um, uh, activities. And uh, that's that's really valuable. That really moves things forward, um, as opposed to just letting the market move forward, you know, more slowly. And, mm -hmm. and there have been positive experiences with that in Angola and in Nigeria, as you mentioned. Um, it, the, it works better there because of the, 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 the um, how large those state-owned enterprises are, those oil companies are, and uh, how much oil is there in the ground. In, uh, and it works in some mining, uh, large mining countries as well. It, 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 there, you've seen this in Tanzania and Zambia and, and other large mining companies, uh, countries. So you've seen it in South Africa, certainly. Um, but it's, you know, there, there are problems with state-owned enterprises. They are not often known for their efficiency and, and for their um, good public leadership, but uh, that's one of the challenges that has to be overcome. And uh, citizens can also take a role in holding the, their own state-owned enterprises accountable. Uh, this is where transparency comes in. 
and uh, and uh, I'm I'm very I'm very much in favor of government and state-owned enterprises acting transparently, and I believe that that would make them more efficient and more effective in the long term. You are right about the JV arrangement, especially as a transition, but an initial entry phase, both to mobilize finance, but also to be able to make beneficial use of the expertise that reside with the private firm. I think one of the of course, more successful state-owned entities, the uh, Saudi Aramco, started that way, actually, with a, a joint venture with an American oil company, later on owned wholly by the state, and now going back again to be publicly listed. Anyway, uh, Jesse, this has been very uh, interesting. Let me see if uh, I can throw at you one last question. I mean, different people have a different view of what the underlying challenges of value addition are. And I just wanted you to give us your take. What do you think, if you were to summarize, we've spoken about a lot of things, what would be the key challenges that you see that are associated with value addition in natural resources? Yeah, so uh, I, I already mentioned this briefly, but two quick points that I would make on value addition are the, the, the problem of um, making sure that you're not focusing on indigenization and the problem of uh, dealing with elite benefit. So often value addition and local content are confused with indigenization. But in my view, if a, a foreign owned company wants to domicile um, um, economic activity in your country, you should give them the same benefits that you would give to a local company because the importance is not in the end who owns it, but that that economic activity is occurring, that jobs are being created and and so on. And and that's why it's such a different approach to resource nationalism. Um, And uh, when you focus on indigenization, then uh, what often ends up happening is that only the elites will benefit at the expense of achieving a more more developmental outcomes. And, And that's even more true because of the corruption risks associated with um, uh, local content policies. With trying to any any situation where you're trying to protect an industry and pick winners and losers, there's a huge amount of discretion there. And uh, so those are two very big stumbling blocks. But I believe with transparency, that's why I advocate for a democratic developmental state. Uh, and a state that reflects the priorities of of communities. Communities are always articulating, wherever I do my research, a desire to see resource extraction take place, but simply to to benefit from it, to have it occur in a transparent and sustainable way, and for it to be um, uh, um, uh, uh, a benefit to their own livelihoods and and to their future generations. And that's what I, I fundamentally believe um, the extractive industries can be if they uh, pursue value addition. That's wonderful. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation, Jesse. Thank you once again for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast all the way from University of Windsor in Ontario. I'm sure we'll talk to each other again very soon. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Sheila. I've really enjoyed it. and I, I do hope we speak again soon. <laughs>